Welcome back to the Trojan Talk podcast. We are back on the weekly routine, the in-season schedule, breaking down USC football's recent performance and previewing the next game as we will do each week this season for the now number 10 ranked Trojans. USC moves up to number 10 in the Associated Press Top 25 poll after its 66-14 domination of Rice in the season opener, which, as I wrote in my column for Trojansports.com on Saturday, it it just it felt significant. It felt like a true turning of the page from previous years when these openers against lower conference opponents were anything but enjoyable, uh, stress-free, quite the opposite. This was the way a USC football team is supposed to handle a game against Rice. And I think it's emblematic of the Lincoln Riley era, of the talent he's assembled on this team, of the confidence and discipline they play with, just general plan that that this team, this program now has under Riley. Yeah, I mean, you can only read so much into a win over Rice. I get that. Not scheduling any parades just yet. But it just felt like a new era Saturday. And that's as far as I'm going to take it. But that was significant in its own right. Uh, you'll hear us talk about it in the podcast. But the best quote of the night was offensive lineman Justin Dietich, who goes, you know, it w- wasn't a big crowd. It, it was it was a really hot day. And obviously, they had to rebuild that a vibe in the Coliseum. And Lincoln Riley said it's going to take time. But Justin Dietrich says, in the past, the fans would leave because we were getting blown out so bad. This time they left because we were winning so well. That felt new. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that kind of encapsulated it a little bit. Anyways, I'm Ryan Young, publisher at Trojansports.com. I think we're all fired up for the season, to, for fans to watch the season, for us reporters to cover the season to feel like there is this is heading somewhere, like there is there is something maybe significant or important down the road for this team, which we couldn't quite feel in recent years. So uh, that's the extra bounce you hear in my voice. And anyways, we will do this every week, and almost every week we will do it with my familiar co-host going on four seasons now. The former USC quarterback, Max Brown, is back with the Trojan Talk podcast again this year. And I think that his insight will be more valuable than ever because he's really good about breaking down the opponent. And it just didn't seem like anyone cared the last few years about the matchups. Like it was almost just secondary to the overall malaise of the program. But people should care. This is now a top 10 team and it could be a really fun ride. So we will break down the matchup this weekend with Stanford. We will go deep into the storylines from the 66-14 win over Rice. We will talk about Caleb Williams' near-perfect Trojans debut, Jordan Addison, the receivers, Raleigh Brown, the five-star freshman. And as a quick note at the top of the show, uh, because Max and I recorded on Monday – which is when we're going to almost always record this year. Uh, Relique Brown's status was very much up in the air. He had been taken to the locker room on a cart at the very end of the game when everyone else was walking up to the locker room. He, he was taken on a cart, had his right uh, cleat off, 
So some kind of ankle, foot injury, and we just didn't know his status. Well, we got to ask Lincoln Riley after practice Tuesday, and he was not, he was a little ambiguous, but he did say he was able to do quite a bit in practice Tuesday. And if that continues to trend well, then he would expect him to play, but he wouldn't commit to that yet. Seems like it's still up in the air. With that, let's get into the podcast. Let's bring on Max and and have some fun here. Back into the show. You know him well. This is our fourth season of doing this now. The former USC quarterback, our TrojanSports.com analyst, Max Brown, back on the show. Max, how are you? What's up, Brian? Doing well. Excited to, to be back in the swing of things, back in the routine, back in our routine, breaking down USC football games. And I have a feeling that there will be more interest than we've ever had before in these podcasts, uh, just given the overall tenor around the program this year. Without a doubt, yeah, I'm trying to look back. Definitely the last four years, this is probably the most optimistic and excited I've been after a week one performance, and certainly easy to do that with 66 points on the board from the Trojan offense. Most points since 2008. Like you said, USC wins 66-14 to 14 over Rice. We're going to break down that game. Not that you can take everything away from a week one game against a team like Rice, but still it was our first look at the Lincoln-Riley offense and a lot of these players. So we'll break all that down, but we're also going to get, get in heavy to Stanford and prep for this week's Pac-12 opener. We'll be relying on, heavily on Max for that because he has he has the eyes on Stanford and knows their team better than I do. But let's start with Saturday, and we'll start broad. Overall, what were the most important takeaways for you from Saturday? Most important takeaways, uh, I'll start with the obvious. I mean, one, this offense is loaded, and I think we all knew that Lincoln Riley was going to find a way to, to use all these weapons. But, you know, we've been told that in years past, and it hasn't always happened in terms of, hey, this guy's excited on the practice field, but maybe it doesn't transition to the game. I know it's only one game, but the amount of guys that got, you know, legitimate touches, um using them in unique roles. I think that's another element that stuck out to me when, especially, especially in this receiver room, when you talk about, you know, a Taj Washington or a Mario, Mario Williams being like slot guys rather than outside guys. And some of those nuanced roles stuck out to me, but offensively, while everything what I see intrigued to see how the running back room progresses in the weeks to come, just given uh, how much talent is there yet only one, one and sometimes two spots uh, on a field at one at once. And then, the defense, I, I look at it from a, a 30,000 square foot view. And I mean, last year, that defense was a bad defense. Let's just call it what it is. And over the course of, call it nine months, the ability, how Lincoln Riley has totally flipped. I mean, the entire roster, but I noticed it a bunch on defense in terms of just, you sense the energy, you sense the activity. Uh, Grinch called it a, a high energy defense. Well, that activity certainly shown. And um, I mean, I think you, you see the skill, but then you feel the depth as well with the amount of guys that are able to roll out there and that depth will be tested. I know rice is just rice, but um, I walk away uh, incredibly encouraged on the defensive side of things, even though there was some mishaps, I kind of knew what to expect. Uh, I knew the offense was going to be explosive, but defense, I, I don't think this season is necessarily going to be one where, every game you have to outscore people. I think there's a world where you can rely on your defense um, at quarters. I don't know if the defense wins you games, but I think they can come up with enough big plays to be a, to be a legitimate factor this season. 
Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, when it comes to uh, snap counts and, and rotations and everything, we'll know a lot more after this game this week. I, th- I think there was the opportunity, obviously, to play a lot of guys against Rice when you get up so big. That was expected. We'll learn a lot more in a lot of ways this week. But I'll say this. I wasn't surprised. I, I found myself not surprised at all by the score and, and the offense. Obviously, the defense had three pick sixes, so it counted for 21 of those 66 points. But whatever number the offense had put up, I would not have been surprised just because we talked all preseason and really back to the spring and as the transfers were starting to come in about how stacked each position group was. And we saw that Saturday and we saw a lot of the stuff that we expected come to fruition. And you had a good line uh, earlier. You said, you know, we've heard these things in years past and it hasn't quite translated to to Saturdays. We're going to be saying that a lot, I think, about the difference from last year to this year and that what we hear and, and, and what we expect is probably going to be closer to reality than maybe it has been in the past. Let's start with the defense, though. And you mentioned Alex Grinch's own way of kind of framing his defense. And he had a great quote after the game. He goes, we're an effort-based defense. And whenever I say that, people try and ask me about scheme, and I say we're an effort-based defense. And then they try and ask about personnel, and I say we're an effort-based defense. And trust me, I know from experience that is exactly how that conversation plays out because I've asked him numerous times back to the spring to try and, you know, so kind of tell, tell us about your scheme. Like, like what are the, the points of emphasis? How is it unique? And it's always it's an effort-based defense. He stresses it. I have a massive feature story coming on Grinch this week. I talked to a couple of his former Washington State players, and that's obviously where he kind of made his name as a coordinator for the first time. And, and they'll tell you the same thing. And it's just kind of been consistent. He thinks that that's the great equalizer. You can have the best personnel if they are not – totally locked in and playing to max effort at all times, then you're not getting the full value of that personnel. You can have lesser personnel if they're playing harder than the opponent, then you're exceeding maybe expectations from your personnel. But it starts with effort for him. That's what he said. Defensively, what did you like the most? Yeah, I guess I'll just uh, I'll add on to the effort-based concept. It'll be interesting to see, like, you know, Grinch had to have that mindset at a Washington State because they literally didn't have the talent to run exotic schemes. So, like, they had to hang their hat on effort versus, yes, he's had talent at Oklahoma, but it'll be interesting to see, especially USC, relative to other Pac-12 teams, having on paper more talent. Like, all right, you pair that talent with the effort-based defense. You'd like to think that could be a huge uh, or, or a great marriage. And I think that is what I noticed, especially on the edge. I mean, Romello Height, Nick Figueroa, two guys, um, Solomon Tulia Pa, uh, see if I get his last name right. Solomon T, Tulia Pa, Tulia Poo There we go. Got it. Got it right there. But guys active on the edge that you felt that. And I, I mean, it, it's not, uh, it's not sexy to say like some X's and O's might, uh, might be like a crisp point, but, when guys are playing hard, that's something we did not see last year. We saw an element of, you know, you get punched in the mouth, you give up. That wasn't the case this year. I think at the linebacker position, loved what I saw there from uh, Goforth, Gentry, and Lee. That's a position ever since Cam Smith left a few years ago that you've, you've, uh, you've seen flashes here and there. You've seen drives here and there, but you haven't seen guys that you're like, all right, that can be, those guys can be an enforcer really encouraged about the backers and in the secondary we will see because they did not get tested at all on saturday but i like the fact that you're able to roll out there multiple jerseys i like the fact you're able to get Kalen bullock you know he, he you can feel that he 
it's kind of that commander back there in center field as a second-year guy. Last year, learned his way a little bit. Obviously, had a super successful year, but I like the secondary, too. I just think there's tons of pieces defensively that you can work with, which was not the case last year. So excited to see how Grinch pieces them all together. Yeah, a couple guys that I want to spotlight. First of all, Shane Lee. I just noticed him on Saturday in a way that I have not noticed the linebackers in recent years. And it's been a running joke with uh, me and a few of the other beat writers that it's, it's like the one position we never feel we have a grasp on. And when people ask us how the linebackers look in practice, we're like, um, I'm not really sure. Uh, and part of that is because they just didn't stand out. Like It's too easy to follow the ball, follow the play, or see things not going well at that position. But I know this Shane Lee. Obviously, the pick six is one, but I, you know, just sticking some hard tackles. I like the way he plays. And then Kalen Bullock. I think I wrote this in our, our countdown of the 22 most important Trojans for 2022. But if I had to bet on one guy to be the next NFL star defensive player to come from USC, he's my bet. I just – his frame, his uh, his measurables, his attributes, the, his mindset, the way he plays, I don't think there's any way he's not going to be an impact player at the next level. I know that's really projecting things out there, but that's just how I think about him at all times. Is he's, he is such an asset. He is a future high draft pick, uh, and I can see that already as a sophomore. I love him in coverage. Yeah, definitely. I think, to me, the – the question that I'll be looking at this year is how is he in the box? How is he tackling? Because when you look back on, I mean, he's wearing the number seven now and a longer, lankier safety. It reminds me of TJ McDonald, who was, you know, here a decade ago. Literally, he's got a similar body type, but TJ hung his hat on, you know, coming downhill, being active in the run game. It's funny that, you know, Taylor Mays is also a coach on the USC staff. Those taller guys, you know, you can play center field, but how are they in the box? That, to me, is the next step for Kalen. But I'm I'm excited about him. I was excited for Max Williams, too, the other safety, getting back after a year away. And that's a group that you can't just have bodies back there. For SC to win a Pac-12 title, I think you need to have impact dudes at the safety position. And so far, so good. Week one for Bullock. Yeah. Now, all, all this said, I am not going to uh, dive in head first in this defense yet. I came into this season very – Cautious and and uh, and trying to project what they would do. Definitely, you know, taking a wait and see approach. I'm still going to wait and see. I'm, I'm, you know, three pick sixes is is great. It's kind of happenstance when two of those go off receivers' hands. Not taking anything away from it, but certainly you don't build that into the game plan each week. So uh, I am not ready to dive all in on the defense. We got to see a lot more. Let me flip it on over for you, Max. What, if any, concerns do you still have about that unit that maybe? Uh, are the same as they were before this game. Yeah, I'm going to contradict myself a little bit, but I like the secondary, but I'm still waiting to have them get tested. I mean, like we said, Rice was Rice. The, the upcoming test this week against Stanford will be a different ball game. I mean, Stanford has a NFL quarterback, or at least on paper. People think that he uh, has the potential to be a, uh, you know, the next Stanford great. And then before Jordan Addison transferred to USC, I thought that Stanford had the best receivers in the conference. That's even with the transfers Whoa. before Jordan Addison. But Stanford's receivers are loaded, and we will notice a difference in play calling. We'll notice a difference in scheme. They're big. They're physical. And from a Stanford perspective, they're finally all healthy. Um, so that secondary will have, have a test this week. 
There's a, I don't even need to hedge it one one bit. The Stanford receivers are great. Their offensive line might not be elite like they were back in the days, and uh, the, the 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 run game could be something that you know SC can take advantage and, and be able to pin their ears back. But uh, Stanford receivers are legit, so all those guys are going to have to be uh, ready to go this uh, this weekend. Yeah, especially that second cornerback spot where you have Sierra Wright and Jacoby Covington, who rotated this past week. Neither guy has really played much at all at the college level, and the depth is pretty thin right now just due to injury, which Josh Jackson's been out, Monty Jackson's been out, you know, someone down the line. So you don't have a lot of depth, and you don't have a lot of experience, and if I'm Stanford or any team, I'm going to be testing those guys on that side early and often. So a fair point there. I also still need to see a lot more from the defensive line before I – uh, alleviate or assuage any concerns that I had entering the season, but uh, we'll just address that as it comes. Uh, all right, let's turn it over to the bulk of the conversation, the offense, Lincoln Riley's offense. Max, we can all see the stats. We can see the obvious stuff, but you play the position at the college level. You know offenses uh, much deeper than we do. We've used the term, uh, everyone's used the term mastermind for Lincoln Riley, and I, it's I think – those, some variation of that term is always applied to anyone who has success as a coordinator. But in his case, it might actually be uh, validated given his uh, almost impeccable track record and his USC debut. What jumped out to you about Lincoln Riley's offense, the way he created things, the way he called things? What impressed you there? Yeah, the personnel packages uh, jumped out to me right away, and that, that's getting right into the X's nose. But it, it, there's, there's a reason for it because – when you look at this roster, you're loaded at receiver, you're loaded at running back, you love your quarterback, and I think you really like your offensive line. But the group that I did not mention is the tight end room. That's a that's a room that that is definitely not stacked, and you could maybe make the argument that it's that it's thin, and it's it's probably thin with respect to run blocking tight ends. And so I think we saw we, in in week one we saw a lot of ten personnel, which means one running back and no tight ends, and four receivers, which is you know, old school air raid type of ways and not necessarily something that Lincoln Riley did at Oklahoma. I mean, we all know the great tight ends and some of the H-backs that he's had at Oklahoma. I mean, there's a reason because he likes using those. This offense doesn't necessarily have those guys. Maybe a Lake McCree and Malcolm Epps can grow into that role. But on the flip side, you have so many of these receivers and so many of these running backs. How can I get creative to get these get all these guys in the field? That's what jumped out to me right away. I mean, uh, the formation where there's a running back to the right uh, in shotgun and then another running back right behind him. That was a new one for me. That's a creative wrinkle. And I'm sure that's not only because of maybe the tight end room, but just the fact that, you know, you have a, a guy and a Jones and now you have Relique Brown. And oh, by the way, Darwin Barlow, somehow your fourth string running back, like that's a unique way to get both those guys on the same field. So the whole personnel packages jumped out to me. And uh, love the use of the 10 personnel, uh, no tight ends and four receivers, because in years past on this podcast, I was calling for Graham to double down on that strategy, especially a few years ago when you had the four NFL receivers. But even last year when you didn't have dynamic guys um, at depth, I mean, I know you had Michael Trigg, but he was banged up at times and finding his way at times. It felt like you could have found creative wrinkles with that 10 personnel that hadn't necessarily happened per se in years past that if week one's an indication this year, I think the, uh, the creative possibilities for the, for the skill players are endless in this offense. Was there a particular route concept that caught your eye? 
Uh, I think the one that jumped out to me is, you know, when you're able to line up Mario Williams in the slot and have him be your RPO guy, who's an absolute, you know, electric plug in the slot. It's not just like he's doing swings and whatnot. We saw the second he gets the ball right behind the linebackers, like, look out. It's a foot race. And that to me was uh, intriguing because last year in Oklahoma, Mario Williams played much or a lot on the outside. He played predominantly slot receiver in this game, which makes sense for his body type. But that concept of, hey, you got to respect the run. You got Austin Jones. You got Travis Dye. And then Mario Williams using his quickness to sneak in behind him. I think uh, it's a relatively basic concept, just like RPOs in general. But I think, I think USC could have a field day uh, with those schemes this year. Nice. A, a great point that uh, Artaj Warkanakar made in his first and 10 breakdown was about the sequencing and the, and, the, and the strategy of the play calling and how everything felt purposeful. And early in that game, we saw Jordan Addison kind of feasting over the middle on those quick slants. And then, sure enough, his first touchdown, he fakes the slant inside, pops back outside, wide open for the touchdown. Uh, I think stuff like that, we know this, but there's probably even deeper stuff that I didn't pick up on just in the way he uh, can really strategizes the play calling sets things up for later. It's going to be really fun to follow that and try and scrutinize and dissect that more deeply each week. It'll be fun to follow too. If, you know, is it, I mean, last year we're coming from an offense where it was feed Drake London at all costs. <laughs> yeah. If week one of this week was an indication, it's, Hey, we're going to spread the love around. But it's easy to do that versus Rice. If you find yourself in a close game against Utah and you need to come up with big catches, do they start focusing on a Jordan Addison? Does Caleb Williams fall in love with the, maybe a safety blanket in a Mario Williams? Like, How does the offense uh, look in that regard? Because I can see it just being a, hey, we're going to call our concepts, and whoever is that receiver, we don't care the jersey number. You know, he's going to go out and make a play. And it's crazy that I'm saying that with Jordan Addison being the Blitnikoff award winner, but there's just, there's just so much talent out there. And that, uh, that piece to it will be interesting. And I, and I want to shout out Tosh Washington because he's a guy that, you know, did not get a ton of the headlines and love, especially at the receiver position this past off season. But right away, you could tell that they wanted him to be a part of it. They wanted him to have a role and, you know, to have both Tosh Washington and a Mario Williams, the similar skill set you'd like to think. I mean, that's the reason that maybe you take tight ends off the field, have both those guys lined up in the slot. And, I mean, man, that's an absolute uh, nightmare for, for linebackers. Yeah, I was going to spotlight Taj uh, coming up here as my biggest surprise. And I'll just admit it. Like, I just kind of overlooked him once they brought in four receiver transfers. And I just didn't see him as a guy that was going to – Carve out a major role. He leads the team in this first game with 65 receiving yards, four catches on five targets. Did have the one drop, but I think what's notable, and not to be the dead horse from last year, but I think that Lincoln Riley actually used him as in the way his skill set should be utilized, and not you know as a deep threat downfield where he's not doesn't have the best hands, is not the best at contested catches. Uh, we banged that drum all last season, and. Sure enough, you see Lincoln Riley come in and go, nope, we're going to use this guy out in space on, on short, quick passes. So uh, credit to, to Taj Washington for you know not being discouraged by the transfer portal uh, pillaging of the offseason and, and finding a place in this offense. Yeah, I think on that same note, too, I mean, obviously 
you know, Gary Bryant's usage goes down. And in terms of a surprise, it feels like, okay, if there's only, only room for one of the, I'll call them old USC receivers, Mm -hmm. does Taj, you know, take that role? I mean, if, if week one's any indication, the answer is yes. And I mean, it's a numbers game. There's only one ball to go around. I mean, if we're, if we're being truth tellers, the receivers that might be on the outside looking in are a, a Gary Bryant, um, a Kyle Ford potentially, and then going to listen and like uh, Terrell Bynum coming from Washington. I'm sure he was expecting that maybe a little bit larger role, but we'll see long season. If they're going to use four receivers on uh, consistently on drives, that'll definitely give uh, more role, more, more roles for, for guys to, to get in there. Yeah, definitely too soon to draw conclusions, but certainly Gary Bryant, one target, one catch for seven yards. He was a guy that I just thought would fit this offense. Oklahoma was one of the big teams in his recruitment, so Lincoln Riley knew him as a prospect coming out. And just his his abilities downfield, I thought, were going to be a good fit. And maybe they still will be, but if you're Gary Bryant, you have to be disappointed with that first game. Uh, Brendan Rice got the start. Got the, the spot on the depth chart, a first-team outside receiver, but has one catch, one target for five yards. I know Terrell Bynum was a guy that you were really high on coming from Washington. I have gone back and forth on him so many times. I, I kind of felt like he got recruited over with the rest of the transfers that came in. But then I, as I was doing that, that, uh, that series on the top 22 most important players for this year, I had Brendan Rice on there at, like, number 22, and I – I was uh, given some intel that I should maybe flip him in with, with Terrell Bynum, so I did, and uh, I regret that decision now. But uh, it was certainly uh, no targets for, for Bynum there. So, yeah, we'll find out more about that as, as it goes on, but the wide receiver rotation was always going to be one of the top storylines, and it remains very interesting. Kyron Hudson got four targets, three catches for 34 yards, so he was a guy that impressed in spring. We'll see how it shakes out over a few more games, but, but definitely Tosh Washington, the big surprise from game one. Yeah, it's interesting to see just, like, role-wise, how it all plays out. Like, does a Brendan Rice, you know, he's obviously a, a big receiver. Does he have more of a red zone presence? And we sense that they're trying to dial him up. Or is it one of those things where when you have Addison and Williams, you're just they're, – they're so dynamic in Washington that you're always scheming for those guys. Yeah, it's interesting to see it. And similar at the, the running back position, I mean, all those guys – had comparable usage um, in the first game, but you'd like to think over the course of a season, you kind of have maybe A and B, Diane Jones, but then Relief Brown being sprinkled in. It's hard to believe that you could have four guys having a legitimate rotation. But hey, Ryan, we've been down that road before with Marquis Step and uh, all the boys by back in the day. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, going back to my earlier point about the strategy of it all for Lincoln Riley. I have no doubt that we are going to see a much different offense uh, against the Stanford. I'm sure that there was a lot not shown, a lot held back. We didn't see a lot of downfield passing. Maybe that is where a guy like Brendan Rice is more valuable than a guy like Taj Washington when they want to take more shots down the field. So definitely too soon to draw conclusions. The running game is interesting. No one had more than six carries. Relique Brown had a team-high six carries. I just, you know, I certainly knew that Travis Dye was not going to at all replicate the volume he had last year at Oregon, but five carries on the day for 20 yards, very interesting. Also had three catches. So uh, we'll see how that plays out too. But with those running backs, I think – I still think Darwin Barlow is the odd man out. He got five carries in this game, but it kind of happened late. 
And I think as we get more into the, the conference opponents, I think that it's going to be a more condensed rotation unless Relief Brown is injured. And that's the big caveat for this whole week. But let's talk about Relief Brown. I mean, I have hyped him up from the day he signed with USC. I hyped him up all camp. Everyone hyped him up all camp. His teammates hyped him up all camp. So there's been no shortage of hype, but to see it in person was pretty much what I thought it would be. And and he's just so dynamic, so electric. What did you like about Relique? Yeah, I mean, uh, a spark plug. I think the confidence uh, jumps out right away. I mean, to be wearing a USC uniform in the, the first <laughs> – the first touchdown throw up the Heisman pose. I mean, some might take offense to it. I'm sitting there saying, man, I respect the confidence, I guess. Uh, but, no, he's uh, he's special. I mean, as long as he gets touches, I think he's going to find a way to be awfully productive. For me, I'm always intrigued with true freshman running backs, especially with a skill set like his where it's much more of a, a change of pace type back in year one. It's in my experience with true freshman running backs, they suck with protections. They suck in pass pro, and that's the reason that they struggle oftentimes to get on the field. And sometimes fans don't realize that, if, oh, why is the junior or senior playing and not the hotshot freshman? It's because yeah. he doesn't know where his eyes should go in protection. And um, I don't know how Relique Brown is. I just know all else being equal, that's a common hurdle for, for true freshman back. And so if Relique is sprinkled in there on special situations um, for certain plays or certain packages – with USC having so many weapons, do we get to a point where sometimes it feels forced to have him have a specific role when you could just do, you know, something maybe maybe or something comparable with one of these other spark plug type guys? So hopefully he's healthy, but just intrigued over the course of a season when you don't have the luxury of blowing teams out. How does his role um, get impacted? And maybe it is a change of the pace back type of type of situation which is great i mean uh, austin jones certainly is a, a bigger back travis die can do it all but it's, it's probably on that you know more rough and tumble and maybe that works to release uh, benefit where he is the, the the change of pace jet sweep type of guy but there's a reason I, mean, I remember when he signed it was hey is he gonna play slot this year a little bit and to me that mold that he would do in the slot is what tosh washington and what mario williams does so We'll, we'll see. I, I do know one thing. True freshman running back struggle with production. Sometimes they're Achilles heel. And you also don't want to put too much on a true freshman running back and have him learn so many things that he gets overwhelmed. But awfully exciting and think he's going to have a great career at SC. I do think his backfield touches will be limited, but I think that he's going to have a steady role when healthy. He's just too good to keep off the field. He's too unique of a weapon. I think he'll have a, a pretty consistent role all season. He had a 40-yard reception. He had a 14-yard touchdown run, and that was just in a kind of a, a small dosage of, of what he can do. So, again, we'll find out where his uh, foot or ankle is this week, what his status is, but I think you're going to see plenty of him all season long. Since you brought it up with, with the blocking element of running backs, I want to single out two plays that stood out to me. Travis Dye, and I didn't – I'm still going back to watch the film for a third time. I haven't focused on, on all of this and on every rep, but he was a relentless blocker, and there was one standout example where he just stuck with the guy all the way to the, the kind of the back of the pocket, and Caleb Williams had started to look like he was going to run out of the pocket – because he, he saw the pressure coming, but Dye just stuck with it and kept pushing that guy back downfield. And 
and Caleb stayed in place and made the, made the pass. Really impressed there. And then Kyron Hudson had a great block on that Relief Brown 14-yard touchdown run. He was relentless downfield, kind of pushing this guy out of bounds and, and keeping that lane open for Relief on the left side. So I know that that's been a major emphasis uh, for the receivers, obviously for the running backs, is that if you don't block, you won't play. And I think we saw that kind of manifest in the way those guys approached it. And I think that's a big uh... – evidence point of you know culture and then and the tides turning a little bit i mean culture's a buzzword in college football but when you're doing those little things and it matters to guys especially for a guy like die you know i mean everyone says he's a high character dude and i've certainly seen that in person but for these transfers to come in the mindset could easily be hey i'm gonna come in here i'm gonna get mine i'm gonna get my touches do my thing when they're willing blockers when they're doing things that might not show up in a stat sheet, might not get noticed by fans. That's a, that's a championship culture. That's a great sign. And I know going into week one, a huge concern just throughout the conference uh, with USC was, oh, how are all these transfers going to mesh? How are they going to mold? And I think people on the inside didn't really have that concern. You kind of got the sense that, you know what, Lincoln Rally's got things under control. You have leadership on both sides. But when new guys are doing things like that, that goes a long way and showing the younger guys how things should be done, which that that loop, that connection, that link, wasn't necessarily there in years past. And uh, it's good to, good to see the, the, the tides turn a little bit. I totally agree. Case in point, Jordan Addison, the reigning Belitnikoff Award winner, had 100 catches last year for 1,700 yards. I don't see any way he approximates that this year with the balance of this offense. He had five catches for 54 yards. Of course, had two touchdowns, but five for 54 in the opener. And he seemed as happy as anybody after the game. He's just, in fact, it was, it was the most relaxed and uh, and and engaging and upbeat I've seen him in the four times we've talked to him. So he certainly wasn't dwelling on his numbers. I asked Dennis Simmons a couple of weeks ago that very question. I said, I said. Jordan's coming from an offense at Pitt where he was the focal point. That's not going to be possible here with all the people you have. How is he going to handle that? And Dennis Simmons' response was, that's just him. He's he's here because he wants to be part of this team. He wants to win. He wants to be part of this, this offense. Anytime that we asked Dennis Simmons about Jordan Addison, the player, he always shifted it to Jordan Addison, the person, how impressed he's been by his work ethic, by just his relentless focus, by his team-first mentality. And there's been nothing to uh, indicate that that's hyperbole or, or anything else. It really seems to be the case. And certainly with the Travis die, he's he's had the big stats, the big numbers. He came here because he wanted to be, A, closer to home now that he's engaged, but also he wanted to be part of this Lincoln-Riley offense what they're building. I don't think he is probably too upset about his usage. I, I think it's a great point, and – we talked about it all camp. We heard about it all camp, about how tight this team is, how close they are. And there's just been no evidence to the contrary yet. So I'm going to have to go ahead and buy all that at this point. It has to be so nice for all the carryover guys to, you know, get out of the cloud that was over the team, whether we wanted to acknowledge it or not at times. But just, you know, the cloud the past couple seasons of not sure where things stand and fan base being justifiably critical of uh you know of, of just or just everything to get out of that and come out crushing rice momentum all on the right page you had so much chatter and talk in the off season and to follow through with it week one i mean it's uh it's just gotta feel good especially for guys that uh had seen 
the, the dark times for SC. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, last year, uh, Todd Orlando told us all that he was taking the defense to, a, to the dark place. We just didn't know what that meant in the moment, but it certainly went there. <laughs> I'm not sure if you saw this this comment from Justin Dietrich after the game, but I, it was, it was the quote of the night for me. I forget what he was even directly asked about. Maybe it was about the crowd or whatever, but he goes, you know, we're – we're used to the fans leaving because we're getting blown out so bad. Tonight they left because we, we, we won so well. He goes, I guess that's new to me. <laughs> <laughs> Got to respect the honesty, I guess. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Well, leaving because of the heat, too. <laughs> Something else. Yeah. I was, I was in the air-conditioned press box, so it was just fine for me. But now I kid. Uh, let's stick with the offensive line real fast. You know, certainly there's was a lot of confidence going into this season, especially about – uh, the the interior guys, the the sixth year and fifth year seniors at guard in the center. Overall, what was your evaluation of the line? And did either of the left tackles, uh, Cortland Ford or Bobby Haskins, look better than the other to you? Yeah, I think my evaluation was the fact that like I forgot to I forgot to watch them because they were just like doing their job and it wasn't a concern. And you know, you had all these shiny toys out wide that. Uh, you know, I was so focused on those guys. So I really got to dive into the, the the nuances there. But big picture, I love that group. I think they were productive. I said it in the off season, and um, I think they showed out uh, week one in that I think you can win a conference championship with that group. Um, I think the experience shows, I thought, with some of the run schemes, or I guess I was intrigued to see run scheme-wise how exotic Lincoln Riley would get. And I don't think he was – that exotic week one i think that's in in large part one because it's rice and it's week one you maybe don't want to show everything and then two when you're not utilizing tight ends as much i don't think i think that limits you know how exotic you can get in the run scheme which is fine you know have those guys those experienced guys execute but left tackle wise i gotta go back and dive in and see how uh ford and haskins are doing what was your take on it yeah, I'm in the same boat. In fact, I'm just not the best person to evaluate offensive line play. But like I said, I'm going through my third watch, and, and that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm at the blocking and, and O-line level, so I'll know more after that. But certainly, I, I think, again, the draw conclusions against Rice would be premature. Let's see it against a Pac-12 opponent in Stanford and go from there. And of course, we'll get Lincoln Riley's assessment this week, and if anything's changed with the rotation at left tackle. Uh, I, I looked down a few times and, and was really impressed with Bobby Haskins. That's not to say I wasn't impressed with Cortland Ford. I just I normally watch the ball, and so I get to the end of a, of a half or a game and I go, oh, I meant to watch those linemen. They didn't really do it that much. So it's just yeah. just natural habit. So I, I don't have a definitive answer on that yet, but certainly a topic we'll revisit and get more into. Okay, well we've gotten we beat all around it without getting to the star of the offense quarterback Caleb Williams and I'm going to say this expectations could not have been higher for him and yet he still exceeded it for me I had watched the highlight packages from Oklahoma but you're just seeing you know the, the best plays matched together you know I, I didn't really watch a full game of his I saw bits and pieces here and there to watch him operate over the course of a game and for every throw to be right on the mark and confidently thrown. And it didn't matter if he was on the run, that ball still came out like a missile right where it's supposed to go. Uh, we'll get into my favorite throw of the day, which was actually one of his few incompletions, was that throw to Mario Williams in, on the left side of the end zone. 
where there was nobody open. And when he threw it, I couldn't even see Mario Williams because he was behind the defensive back, which was the same view that that Caleb Williams had. And he just kind of had a sense and and a trust to throw that ball. And sure enough, Mario got his hands on it, couldn't get the foot down. uh, So it was an incompletion, but just a really confident pinpoint throw. But that was every throw. That That was all day long. 19 of 22 for 249, two touchdowns. Of those three misses, one was the Taj Washington drop. One was an intentional throwaway out of bounds, and one was that play to Mario Williams that I just mentioned that very easily could have been the play of the day if, if he had gotten his foot down. He was almost perfect. I mean, he, he literally, essentially, essentially was perfect. I was so impressed. Max, as a quarterback, give us your, your full assessment of Caleb. Yeah, I was impressed as well. And um, I had seen him enough last year to know that he was really accurate, to know that he threw an extremely catchable ball. But what jumped out to me and – um, this might be a, a byproduct of, you know, being a second-year guy. He's a true freshman last year, but his arm strength jumped out to me. I mean, it wasn't a concern for me, but sometimes when you say, hey, a quarterback throws a really catchable ball, there's a subtle element of that in that he doesn't have an absolute cannon, so it's, you know, easy to catch. And I think there was a little bit of that to me with Caleb Williams last season, but that was not the case uh, on Saturday. And I think that's one thing that uh, – you know, SC fans, we can't lose sight of in that Caleb Williams was a true freshman last year. Like the jump that could potentially happen in year two could be huge. For and I mean, for a guy that was awfully productive last year, I mean that's uh, that's saying something. But I was really impressed. His whole demeanor, um, his commands. Um, for those fans that are keeping the receipts of my Twitter, I said that uh, Jaden Delora from Arizona played the best uh, at quarterback I saw in that. the conference. I saw that. Yeah, I'm sticking with that. I think uh, Delora played played uh, even better, actually, than Caleb, and that's only because he was asked to do more. I mean, it, and I think Caleb would tell you this. That was as easy as it's going to get with Rice. Um, I think this upcoming weekend with Stanford will be, uh, you know, a next-level test. But, uh, hey, you can only do, you know, what, what, what they give you. He was nearly perfect, and I think all the expectations are, are justified heading into the season. Well, well I wrote about this because he talked about it in a really interesting way over the last two weeks, and as did Lincoln Riley, that there was every reason to believe that he could and would be better than what he was last year, which was obviously very good. Riley himself admitted that he just can never allow himself to fully go there with a, with a freshman. He just can never uh, you know, throw everything at him. He, he's very cautious not to overwhelm a first-year quarterback. So he... He said, were there times last year where I could have told him something that might have helped him? Yes, but I also didn't want him thinking too much, so I just was really reluctant in what I gave him and how deep we got into things. And he goes, you know, at this point, I trust him as much as any quarterback I've had. And we're talking about Heisman Trophy winners who had massive seasons. He goes, he's right there in terms of my trust in him. Uh, The whole playbook is open to him. When we talk in the film room, I go as deep as I can with him. And... Caleb, for his part, has said multiple times, it's been kind of his, his slogan, that he wants to become Lincoln Riley 2.0 on the field. Well, I, I wrote in my story that I think we're going to see Caleb Williams 2.0 this season. If the playbook is expanded to him, he's that much more confident in in his reads and his, and his checkdowns and trusting his teammates and everything. There's no reason why he can't be better than last year, which brings us to... The fact that he is still the third favorite for the Heisman 
at what point do we seriously, legitimately start embracing a Heisman campaign? I'm not saying we do it now. I'm just, I'm, I'm asking you at what point, if he keeps playing well, do we seriously uh, start talking about that? That's a great question, Ryan. Let's see here. You got Stanford this week, Fresno. I think if USC is undefeated going out of September, which has not happened in a little while, if I'm not mistaken, USC past decades not been great in the month of September. But if we're walking out of September undefeated with wins over Stanford and Oregon State, Oregon State's a good football team. That's when I think the chatter will start as early as October 1st. Okay. All right. Also, you're totally sliding the great 2020 USC team that went 5-0 and in the regular season. But that's okay. <laughs> did, they, uh, did they play in the month of September? No. Nope. So they were undefeated in September. Oh, true. True, true, true. <laughs> the old pandemic year. Well, building off that, just to get even more uh, you know, further down the road with massive projections – I saw that USC's national title odds jumped from 22 to one to 14 to one after this win. Just your reaction to that? Gosh, dang it, Utah! Why'd you uh, why'd you have to lose? I think maybe it's uh, it's uh, it advantageous to be on the West Coast. There, um, I think yes, it's one thing with you know how USC looked, but I also think you know maybe how some of the uh, the other teams in the conference loss with you know utah and oregon that maybe if you're projected from a from a vegas standpoint that the, the path to to getting in that top top four got a little easier for, for sc potentially but we'll see i think at the end of the day right now we're optimistic rightfully so great performance versus rice the uh the number one concern um that in the offseason was the de- interior defensive line and at times i think that was still a little bit of a concern that they showed its head in week one, and they got to show that out before we're starting to talk uh, college football playoff. No, absolutely, and I want to be perfectly clear. I am not driving that hype train for either the Heisman or the or the national title talk yet, and I uh, won't be in it for any time soon. But just fun to uh, to look at what the what the odds makers think about such things. All right, Max. Uh, I guess my last question on USC, and then let's get into Stanford. Did this first game in any way change your outlook or projection for this team? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think uh, to me, the magic number was nine wins or over under nine, nine and a half. And that's kind of the number that I had. And I like the over and my gut was maybe telling me the, the under going to that game, but I walked away encouraged with the defense. I don't think that's necessarily a defense that wins you a national championship, but I do think that's a defense that can make enough plays um, and there's enough bodies out there to mix things up. And with uh, with Grinch's past of, you know, having his history at Washington State and the schemes that he's done, I, I walked away, encouraged what I saw from a roster standpoint defensively that uh, they can find a way uh, this season. Because keep in mind, guys, like, they don't, they don't need to win games defensively. They can outscore people. They just need to come up with, you know, a quarter of really good defensive football. And that might, that may, that might be all you need. And so walk away more encouraged there. Very good. Well, let's segue over to Stanford. Stanford picked eighth in the Pac-12 preseason poll, comes out, wins 41-10 to over Colgate. Again, very much like playing Rice, but even more so, not a game that you can totally extrapolate from. That said, last year Stanford beats USC 42-28 in the Coliseum and ends the Clay Helton era. 
USC is a nine-point favorite as of right now. Max, you know a lot more about Stanford than I do at this point. Kind of give us your overall uh, breakdown of the Cardinal. Of the Cardinal, yeah. I had the pleasure of calling their spring game, so uh, pretty familiar with this roster. In many ways, they're, they're similar to, to USC uh, in that they have a quarterback that they love, you know, second-year starter for them, receivers that they love, John Humphreys, Michael Wilson, Bryson Tremaine, and Elijah Higgins, all dudes that are really good football players, um, big physical guys. And, and years past with, with Stanford, you think about the tight ends, and, and Stanford does have a really good tight end in Benjamin Urosik, but he's more of a pass-catching guy. The receivers are something that I know David Shaw's really excited about. And that's going to be one of my pet peeves this week, but all season when people say, oh, it's for football, right? It's personnel groups. It's fullbacks. That's not the case with this offense. Yes, they're going to do bits and pieces of that, but, you know, it took Stanford to their third drive of the game to get under center. This is an offense this year that I think is going to want to air the ball out, and that's in one part because of their receivers, but it's also because of their offensive line. I think it's a, a solid offensive line, but it's not an elite offensive line. It's an offensive line that struggled last year, much more healthy this year. They finally get a full off season. Um, so I think offensively, they're good. Defensively, Kai Blue Kelly, who – you can make the argument he's the best corner in the conference, uh, decided to come back for another year at Stanford. I'm intrigued to see how they use him. He's number 17. Do they line him up all over the field against Jordan Addison? Does he just take away one side? Is he schematic with it? Keep your eye on number 17. Kai Blue Kelly will, uh, will, will find himself playing on, uh, playing on, uh, on Sundays. But defensive line-wise, and it's funny because it's the same way with, uh, with SC. It's more of a concern for Stanford, but they are thin and uh, relatively weak interior of the defensive line. So if USC's running the rock and they're getting after them early, that's where you can really punish uh, Stanford. If Stanford had a better defensive line, I don't think they're picked eighth. I think you can make the argument they, 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 they jump up a few spots. The defense line's a concern. They switched their entire front this year. They're for, formerly a 3-4 defense. Now they're a 4-3 defense. Um, so unique there. And then also... Keep your eye on uh, number 23, David Bailey. He's their edge rusher. He's a true fan. David Shaw is over the moon about. They think he's the next great defensive player for them. He'll start uh, He'll start for them as a true freshman, which does not happen usually for a front seven player at Stanford. He's active. He's athletic. And he'll play that, uh, you know, defensive end, stand-up guy. Um, 23, David Bailey's a dude Stanford's uh, really excited about. So David Bailey is a dude that USC fans really, really wanted. In fact, it came down to Stanford and USC for him. I didn't realize that he was already such a, a, a pivotal player for them. How much is he being used? How big is his role? Yeah, from what I saw in the, the, fir- the first uh, week one game, is I believe he started, uh, and then they rotated just like a lot of defensive lines uh, do. But you're, you're going to see him there. I mean – I think he's active. You can see the the talent that he has. I mean, just like with any edge true freshman players, the big question is can they hold up physically? Can they hold up on the run game? Um, especially against USC's tackles that, you know, you'd like to think their experience could, could help, or I guess experience inside as well. But he's solid. He's not a guy you can pick on. I don't know if he's a game changer of week two as a true freshman, but he's a guy that's just worth noting for the, uh, the long term for Trojan fans. Absolutely, absolutely. But looking back at the offense, and again, I don't put a whole lot of stock in the preseason all-conference teams. Case in point, Kalen Bullock didn't even get honorable mention, and uh, he made note of that this preseason, that he was pretty motivated by that. 
But uh, Stanford had no first-teamers on offense, and only the tight end, Benjamin Urosik, is a second-teamer. So you're a little more bullish on their personnel than the general media public is, which is, yeah, again, I, I don't put a lot of stock in those things. So we'll take your insight on this. Tanner McKee, 22 of 27, 308 yards, two touchdowns last week. What do you like about Tanner McKee? Yeah, and, uh, you know, receiver room, it's, 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 it's all good if the, the people disagree with me. It's an it's a entire unit, but we'll see. It's a good test for them. Uh, Tanner McKee, I mean, true pocket passer. I love how he gets the ball out of his hands. I think especially last year when they had deficiencies at offensive line, like that's not an easy spot to be in as a quarterback, and he finds, he finds a way to, to, to get rid of the rock and get rid of it on time. I think, you know, he's that typical – taller pocket passer but don't sleep on his athleticism and by many accounts he's you know really grown into that role and david shaw doesn't hide hide from the fact i mean that, that's a that's a great you know era of quarterbacks that have been at stanford and he puts him right up there in terms of the trajectory that he's on so pocket passer dude love the way he throws with the with timing and then with all the big receivers that he has he does a good job of giving those guys a chance so if we get to a point where stanford's playing kind of bully ball with their big receivers on our corners. Tanner McKee does a good job of uh, giving those guys opportunities. Another guy that I actually did read a lot about in the preseason and, and uh, David Shaw was very effusive about and, and really kind of uh, building up his stock and saying this guy's going to have a huge year, uh, E.J. Smith, the running back, obviously Emmett Smith's son, went 11 carries for 118 yards, two touchdowns, had five catches for 37 yards in the opener. Any thoughts on E.J. Smith? Yeah, he, he benefited from uh, Austin Jones leaving, of course, um, and they also had another running back transfer as well, so a lot of his expectations are uh, are as a result of other dudes leaving. So if he stays healthy, I, I'm assuming he'll be awfully productive, um, you know, very solid in the run game. They like getting him involved in the pass game, and USC fans, you're, we're used to seeing a little Texas route where the running back, Christian McCaffrey, crushed us on this, but where they, he like goes out into the flat and then cuts across the linebacker's face. They love doing that. They've always loved doing that, but they like doing that with E.J. Smith. So he's kind of their do-it-all back. They sprinkle in Casey Philkins, number two, as well. But E.J. Smith, he's a really good running back, um, but the offensive line is not as elite as it once was. So I don't think it's one of those things where you can pound the rock, pound the rock, all day long like you may have in a different Stanford era. Very good. Well, uh, matchup-wise, it sounds like, not to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like maybe the most important matchup is going to be USC's cornerbacks versus this uh, this great receiving uh, unit at Stanford. Is that what you would go with? Yeah, I like that. I like, you know, vice versa as well with, uh, you know, Stanford's DBs against USC's receivers. I mean, I mentioned Kai Blue Kelly, but outside of that, you know, Stanford went into the portal for their only guy in uh, Patrick Fields because Stanford doesn't have the luxury of dipping the portal that much. But that, that's a group where you have concerns and you have some depth issues there. And, you know, USC's receivers are uh, – if I like Stanford's receivers, USC's receivers are the best in the conference, especially with Jordan Addison being there. So both those matchups are uh, – both those matchups are intriguing. I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure Dante Williams and, you know, Grinch are challenging that secondary for SC and saying, all right, guys, here we go. Rice was one thing, but Stanford's a different element. And it's just different from other groups you might see throughout the Pac-12 where this group is really physical. And sometimes I think as SC fans, we maybe don't give that as much credit where guys are not dynamic athletes, so to speak, yet 
they somehow keep coming up with jump balls and they come out they somehow keep coming up with third down conversions that's what this group does and for a, a secondary that's got a lot of new faces it'll be a good test for SC well I think we we covered all this in the course of earlier conversation but just to to bring it put a bow on it what's the one area for USC that you are going to be most interested or think you're going to learn the most about this week yeah, I mean, interior defensive line. I mean, I know we, we kept saying that, but I just think you you were not able to evaluate that group against Rice. You just weren't. Um, you had the luxury of being able to sprinkle guys in. There wasn't that much adversity. Yes, you had to drive the first first drive of the game and the long run, but interior defensive line, I'm intrigued to see, you know, if it comes to a point where this game's close in any respect, who are those dudes that Grinch trusts? Who are those guys that you know, he's hanging the hat on. How active are those dudes? I'll be keeping my eye on the, uh, the D tackles for sure. Very good. And as always, we end it with a prediction. I mentioned USC is a nine-point favorite. But what is your expectation for the score on Saturday? I'll go 41-31 USC. Um, I think Stanford's able to do some things offensively. But uh, they just have too many fits. Uh, Stanford defensively has too many fits with the USC offense, and uh, we find ourselves 2-0. and Well, I'm kind of in the same spread, uh, close to it. I'm going 36-24, to so that's my guess. But then again, my guesses are rarely ever close to the actual outcome, so don't put any stock in that. We gotta, we gotta, like, I, I need to track this this year. we got to see uh, how good I'm doing because we, we, we film these on, on Mondays and Tuesdays, kind of forget about my prediction come Saturday. I got to I got to keep an Excel sheet. Well, I'll tell you what, we haven't we have a sheet like that for our our guess the score contest that we run for our subscribers where everyone guesses. I will go ahead and add mine and your scores in each week moving forward and we can see where we stack up against against the readers, the subs. Let me know. I don't think I can put any action on it. I think it might be illegal for me, but I can uh, at least have a strong read against the uh, against the subscribers. That's all we need. Max, great to have you back on the show. We'll be doing it all season again. As always, uh, enjoyed it. It was a blast. Thanks, Ryan. All right. That's our show. It was great to reconnect with Max. We hadn't done a podcast in quite a while, um, but we normally do most of our stuff in season, and it was always the plan to have him back on for a fourth straight year of doing this. I think we, uh, we both enjoy it. There will be opportunities throughout the season where there's critical moments in games that he can really break down for us pretty thoroughly. And it uh, wasn't so much in the Rice game, but we'll see what happens Saturday at Stanford. If you're not on Trojansports.com, give us a chance. We're dropping great stuff all week. Each week we have our full team. We have several people out on the road at high school games talking to USC prospects, shooting video of, of recruits. We're, you know, we're all at the, at the game – USC game on Saturday, covering that from all angles. So we're at practice, you name it. So USC football, USC recruiting, everything, columns, features, podcasts, photo galleries, everything. You can get it at trojansports.com. We hope you'll join us, and we hope you'll keep listening to the Trojan Talk podcast every week. It'll be either on Monday or Tuesday probably. Uh, we'll tape it on Monday, and it just depends on what else is going on before I can produce it and get it up, but obviously as soon as possible. So that is the plan for the season, and we will see you next week.